Oh, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people. For his merciful kindness or his steadfast love, his chesed, is great toward us. And the truth or the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise you, the Lord. The psalm is so short and to the point that it is easy to overlook. I think in your devotional readings, you might be inclined to just sort of pass by this one. It seems almost like a, a scrap of a hymn that's been included here. And the content is familiar, like the kind of refrain that you encounter just in any place almost. Praise the Lord. Got it. We see this all the time. The call is universal. Great is his steadfast love. This is not the only place by far that that is proclaimed, not in the Psalter, not throughout Scripture. And praise the Lord as it concludes. We read it quickly. Got it. We move on. But the psalm is singled out and put before us in this short form to invite us to pause over it, to think about it, to reflect on just this unit as a complete unit, as a discrete unit. And I think if we do, we will soon see that there's more here than a quick read over it might grasp. It's the end of a school year. It's the end of a semester. Life is busy and full, and it's getting busier and fuller for most of you. Some of you work well ahead, and you're going to be able to glide out here. But for many of you, you're feeling the crunch, <laughs> even if you intended to work well ahead. And of course, you can't get out of exam week and exams. And you're going to be tempted to let the busyness of this week and next week and, and of your transition into the summer and all the changes that might be coming your way, whether you're graduating or going off for internships or, or staying put and taking more classes or whatever it, your summer holds, you're going, to, you're going to be tempted to let the busyness of it all over these next few weeks consume you and distract and divert you from the one thing necessary. Maybe a bit like Martha in the kitchen while Jesus is sitting in the living room teaching. Now is a time, brothers and sisters, to be still before our God who speaks. A time to meditate on this exquisite little psalm that is put before us and to, and to drink it in together and to be very sure that we get it before we move on with our day, with our week, with the rest of our life. So let's indeed pause and let's meditate on it together for a while this morning. It's a simple psalm. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, parallel lines, synonymous. And it's a call to all nations and a call to all peoples. It's a call to the familiar to praise and extol the Lord. But we can't overlook the universal nature of this call. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you are, the psalmist is calling out to you, to the near and to the far, to the powerful and to the weak, to the rich and to the poor, to the free and the oppressed, to the healthy and to the sick, to the clear and to the confused, to the humble who need comfort and the haughty who need humbled. Here is a summons from the faithful in Israel as they sing this psalm together that goes out to all nations and all peoples, to the ends of the earth. No one is excluded, 
and no one is exempt either. Come and praise the Lord with us. Let us exalt his name, extol his name together. It might strike us as surprising that a nation that's so often obsessed with its own exceptional standing is throwing its arms open to the world, urging the nations to come and to enter in and join them in the joy of the worship of the Lord together. That's the nature of hospitality. That's the nature of community. This is our God. And this is his psalmist. And this is how his psalmist opens this ambitious little hymn. And he concludes it with an emphatic command to step to it. Praise the Lord. As if God has a right to rule over our affections, our desires, our wants, our our hopes, to command our devotion and to order our worship. And of course he does. He absolutely has this right. He created us from the beginning to know and to worship and to enjoy him. And he is worthy and has a right to command the the worship of everything that has the breath of life. Others have coveted and even gone so far as to claim to have this right for themselves. But only the living God actually has it. As Bob Dylan once quipped at a concert in town hall, I believe in the Ten Commandments. The first one is, I am the Lord your God. It is a great commandment if it's not said by the wrong people. And he's right about that. Maybe not about the preface of the Decalogue being the first commandment, but he was raised Jewish and that's how they number them. But he's right about there being would-be gods about, unworthy imposters who want to capture and enslave us to themselves, who want to say to us, I am the Lord your God, but they are the wrong people. But our God is not the wrong people, is he? He is the one and only creator, and he is the one and only God of saving grace, who brought his people of old up out of Egypt and gave them a mediator in Moses and gave them instructions about how to build an altar wherever they were as a means of grace and gave them the promise that he would come and meet with them there at this altar wherever they were, however near or however far, and bless them and receive them as they called on him. And all of this and so much more is a type of the salvation that we have in Christ, of the deliverance from the power of sin and Satan, through the only mediator between us and God, and that is Jesus Christ, who, as you know, offered himself up on that rough-made altar of the cross and made a perfect satisfaction for our sins so that God may meet with us in him wherever we are, however near and however far we may be, and come and bless us there and to receive us as we call on his name. Our God is not the wrong kind of people, but the God of saving grace and steadfast love. And he makes a double claim to our praise and devotion. First on all people as God, as the good and generous creator and sustainer who through his common grace satisfies our hearts with food and gladness as Paul preached to the Lystrans. 
But secondly, and more particularly here, the focus of this psalm on us, us, God's covenant people in particular, in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, as Adam and Eve did in Eden and as we all do in our sin. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in our likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Elsewhere, Paul writes, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he draws out the father's love for us when he asks this question, how did he not, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Greater love has no one than this, Jesus explains to us, to his disciples on the night he was betrayed to be taken away and crucified, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so he did. And so he has for us and for our salvation. This is who our God is. This is what he is like. This is the greatness of his steadfast love for us, toward us, his covenant people. This is the thing that has captured the psalmist in this psalm. The greatness of God's steadfast love towards his covenant people. Yes, there are would-be gods about, driven by ambition and greed and fear and ego and who knows what else, who would enslave us like Pharaoh if they could. But this is not our God. Our God is the God of saving grace, whose steadfast love is great toward us, his people. Our God always has our best interest at heart. He can be trusted with our privacy. He can be trusted with our spiritual poverty, with our secrets and our shame, our hopes, our desires, our very lives, and with all that we have and with all that we are. At Sinai, God claimed an exclusive right to Israel's worship. And he did so on the basis of his redeeming grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God had delivered them from a cruel and cynical oppressor, taken this ragged band of just freed slaves to himself as his own people and entered into a covenant of grace with them in which he vowed to be their God, their one and their only God. But you remember how things went, right? While Moses was up on the mountain getting the legal documents and in good order and to bring down, as it were, Israel was back down at the base of the mountain in their camp, breaking their covenant with God, cheating on him before the cake was even cut. The audacity of their spiritual adultery seems shocking. But in truth, from God's perspective, every sin is a treasonous act and every sin is audaciously shameful. But God is more gracious than our sin is audacious. He does not turn them out or shake them off as they deserved or grow cold toward them or pretend that it never happened. Rather, he forgives them completely and freely. He rebukes them 
but he does not renounce them. He disciplines them, but he does not disown them. He rather had his appointed mediator who threw himself down in intercession on their behalf, and he accepted and received that intercession. Our God is a God of grace, and he instead bears the shame of being their God, of being our God, and he is faithful to all he had vowed to them, even when they were not even as he is faithful to all that he has vowed to us, even when we are not. Great is our Father's steadfast love toward us. His faithfulness endures forever. So Moses rose early in the morning and went back up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and the Lord descended and proclaimed his name to him. The Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Great is his steadfast love toward us, toward us, his unsteady people. And his faithfulness endures forever, even when our faithfulness can't be found. This is what the psalmist is meditating on. This is what the psalmist plucks out like a rose from the Exodus account in the wilderness. And he sets it before us in this exquisite little vase of a psalm for our wonder and our amazement and our comfort and our joy. Let us make it the theme of our soul's meditation with such fixed attention that nothing can distract or divert us from it. And to the reality of who our God is towards us in Jesus Christ sinks deep into our rocky souls and is enough for us, is sufficient. That is, until we get it. Until we get it in spirit and in truth until we get it all the way down, until we get it like the psalmist gets it. And how do we know when we've gotten it like this? The answer is right before us in this psalm, isn't it? There's a bit of an irony here. So great is God's steadfast love towards his covenant people that he's moved to call all nations into worship. That's what our God is worthy of. And anything short of that hasn't quite gotten it yet. How do we know when we've got it like this? We know we've got it when we're so moved by the steadfast love of God for us that our souls are filled with gratitude and rejoicing, that we can't help but to praise the Lord and extol him, that we break out spontaneously, as it were, from within us, from within the depths of our soul in praise and adoration and wonder and amazement and joy, that we praise the Lord. But there's more than this. We know we've got it, when our praise is not enough. And we begin to look around for others, near and far, to come and to join us in praising and extolling our God. When we look out on the world and we're scandalized by how little praise of God there is in this world, 
and how few are captivated by his worthiness, by the worthiness of his steadfast love for us. And then we too, like the psalmist, are moved to call the nations to join us, moved to evangelize our neighbors and strangers, moved to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth. Then, then we know we've got it. Got it like this psalmist had it. Got it like God wants us to get it when he sets just this thought before us in this little psalm. Got it like the one who knows the steadfast love of God for his people in Christ forever. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for this time together to pull aside and to meditate for a short spell on this little psalm. And we thank you for its reminder to us of the greatness of your steadfast love towards us and your unfailing faithfulness. That you are the God of saving grace, that there is none like you, that there are many who would claim to have a right to that place in our lives, you alone are our creator and our redeemer. We pray that you would fill us with this thought and particularly of, of how all that we are and all that we have is down to just one thing and that is your grace. And that you would so fill us with the pointedness of this in our lives that we never get over it that we can't turn away from it, that we must meditate on it afresh each day and that we find that it's where our minds naturally turn in every free moment. Just as our hearts turn to praising you and to living out our lives as a grateful response for all that we have received, kindness upon kindness in Christ Jesus, not only in this age, but throughout the endless age to come. How much is ours in Christ? How greatly you are to be praised. Be with us now as we finish the semester. Give students strength and, and concentration and recall and all that they need to be able to finish strong, faculty and staff as well. And be with us as we turn our attention in prayer as we continue our prayers together soon. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.